we still have 27 copies of this book. You know how I harp on about this book all the time. Hands up if you've not bought, no, don't do that. Uh, like this is The Glories of God's Love, a book that really helps you to understand the gospel that we love, that we talk about week after week. It helps you think through, how do I preach the gospel to myself every day? It's only a pound. What is wrong with you people? There are 27 copies left. It's well worth it. We're going to have to start giving them away shortly. No, I didn't say that. Uh, there are pounds by them. Anyway, back to Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews was originally written to Christians from a Jewish background who were once really quite keen and committed, but now, as we've seen in previous weeks, they have been tempted to give up. At one time, they thought this gospel of the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ was just the greatest thing they had ever heard, to the point that they were willing to not only believe it, but to lay their, put their lives on the line for it, put their reputation on the line for it. But now they're having a bit of a wobble. The old ways of relating to God seemed somehow better. Life back then seemed somehow easier. And that's what seems to be tempting them to shrink back from holding on to this gospel that's come to them. And even to turn back, turn away from trusting in Jesus. Now, as they hear this letter read out, because that's what would have happened back then. It's like decision time. They're like shoppers, you know, they're trying to decide between what to do. They've got a choice to make, deciding between two things. You know, it's kind of like the Amazon Echo, Google Home, what am I going to go for? Except it's much more important here. It's Judaism or Jesus. It's religion or faith. Or as the writer puts it at the end of chapter 10, destruction or salvation. Well, that's pretty serious. Well, chapters 1 to 10 are one great long which article to show that side by side on everything, Jesus is better than everything they fancy going back to. And chapter 10 itself ends with this twofold appeal. Don't give up. Don't throw away the confidence you've got in Jesus and keep going. Persevere and you'll receive what's promised. And that's when we get into chapter 11, which is kind of like, in my view, a stadium tour of the Old Testament. That's how I pictured it anyway. I did the Murrayfield tour last year and I was struck by all the pictures of and names of past players and uh, past achievements. And you know why they do that, don't you? Like when Greg Laidlaw takes the number nine shirt off the peg, what does he see? He sees a list of five or six names of previous number nines who've gone before him. He sees the name Gary Armstrong. And what does Greg, Greg Laidlaw do? Well, he's inspired by those who've gone before so that he can seek to live up to and be inspired to live up to the, the commitment of previous generations. And that's really what Hebrews 11 is doing for every generation of believers, not just them, but us. So let's pray together that God will speak to us as we read his word, and then we'll walk through it together. Father, your word tells us that you are good and you mean to do us good, that you're holy and no lie can pass your lips. Uh, trusting these things, may we take what you say today as true and live like it. In Jesus' name, amen. So let me read from verse 8 to 22 of Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country, 
He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they'd been thinking of the country they had left, they would have, have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the, the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so, in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. And by faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. Amen. This is God's word. So how do past generations inspire us today? What are we supposed to take from the lives, and, and I'm really just zeroing in on Abraham and Sarah today, um, what are we supposed to notice about their lives that help us live ours? Well, three things I want us to see today. Uh, they believed what God said, they did as God directed, because they wanted what God promised. And that's our outline today. Number one then, uh, they believe what God says. That's what God calls us to do. Living by faith uh, and persevering in our faith isn't based on some wispy feeling or patchy communication, but on the clear word of God. I think that's the first thing that we see here, especially in verses 8 and 10, but throughout the passage. Did you know, I mean, this is, that's, that's what Abraham and Sarah received, a clear word from God, and that's what inspired their action. I don't know if you noticed how much and how often the word promise is mentioned in verses 8 to 22. It's very prevalent. It's there in verse 9, Abraham and Sarah promised a land, and then again in verse 11, and in 17, and in 18, in relation to having a child and in relation to the this, this scene with uh, Isaac, uh, it's they received a promise in relation to descendants. And this is, these two things are caught up in this one great promise to Abraham. A land for your people to enjoy and a people to enjoy it. Land, descendants. Now you can read much more about that in Genesis 12 and 15. Adam read a couple of those uh, passages to us earlier, but there's more round about there. Chapter 17 is very important. So is 18, so is 22. But let me just point out a couple of examples in relation to, first of all, the land promised. So this is what God is telling them by his clear instruction, clear words. God says, go from your country, Genesis 12, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. What does verse four say? Abram went as the Lord had told him. 
clear instruction led to obedience. And that's the reason why he did what he did. He believed what God said. Uh, Just as he did when God promised descendants in Genesis 15. God's word came to him. Look up to the sky, count the stars, if indeed you can. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. So you see, faith is not something that's to be rooted on something uncertain or wispy or airy-fairy. It's faith back then and faith today is rooted in something that's very, very concrete. And what is it? It's the clear word of God. The clear word of God of the one who cannot lie and who does not renege on his promises. He is faithful. And a faith that pleases God then, a faith that is commended by God, is one that just takes God at his word and lives like it's true. It believes what God says, even if sometimes that's hard to believe. Now, that was true for Abram and Sarah as well. I mean, I love the way they put this. Abraham and Sarah were well on in their years. Uh, He was 75 when he left Haran, and 99 when God promised a child. And both Abraham and Sarah are known to have chortled at the prospect of having kids at their age. I mean, can you imagine Sarah going into the chemist to buy a pregnancy kit? It's a crazy thought, isn't it? And maybe Sarah was imagining the look on the faces of the other mums at the school gate, or, you know, Abraham thinking about how he's going to take the school football team. What's that going to look like with his stick? But these guys, Abraham and Sarah, are commended because they believed God, despite the fact that it was hard. And Sarah not only considered the promise of God as well, but she considered the, the character of God too. You see that there in verse 11. Sarah, who was past childbearing age, so she's thinking about the promise of descendants, was enabled to bear children because, why? She considered him, that's God, faithful who made the promise. So based on a clear word from God and a clear understanding of the character of God, they believe what God said. And as we'll see shortly, went on to do what he said. They obeyed. But how does this apply to us today? Before we move on to that, we too have received a clear word from God Its dependability is underscored by God's impeccable character still. This word of his written down for us attests to itself in ways that one part demonstrates the truth of the other and vice versa. Not one word of his has fallen to the ground. I love the kind of things that archaeology is doing to those who doubt the credibility of the biblical witness just now. 50, 60 years ago, they were saying of this king in Daniel, oh, there's this guy called Belshazzar. You know, he didn't really exist. There's no record of him at all. What did he do? 50, 60 years ago, they dug up a little inscription and found out that this guy was a co-regent, a vice ruler in that time, around the same time of Darius. And they're like, oh, oh, okay. Uh, Let me find another one. Let me find another reason to doubt it. God's word maintains that it's true. That's its own self-assertion. And if you check it out, you'll find out its credibility. We have received clear word from God. The question is, do we believe what God says? 
God has made some very, 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 very specific promises to Abraham and Sarah. He's not promising us a land or lots of descendants, but he's made us lots of promises. He's actually made promises to us even though we're not Christians. If you're here today, you're not a believer. There's, some, there's a lot in here for you concerning Jesus Christ, who he is, what he did. There's a very, very clear presentation of who he is, how he lived, what his identity, who, who he is and his identity, what he was called to do. Specifically, it zeroes in on his death and on his resurrection and gives us reasons for why we ought to believe them. And it gives us the promise that if we do confess, that is, say with our mouth what we believe in our heart. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So that destruction that I was talking about earlier on changes to salvation. It's heaven that will be for you. I'd be interested to know if you would chat to the person who brought you today to talk about that, to help you understand more of those promises. Uh, we run something called a Christianity Explored course, if anyone's interested in it. There are uh, leaflets at the back at the information point just through those doors. If anyone wants to find out more, the course has just started. It's a great place to do that. He's made you promises, and you can believe what God says about salvation. And to those of us who are believers already, God has made incredible promises. I do want to say there are certain things that he hasn't promised. Now, I say that because I think many people can be disappointed with God because they put their hope in something that God has not specifically promised. So he hasn't promised us that we will not suffer in life. He hasn't promised us a wife or a husband or a long life or whatever you want to add in there. But he has promised us great things. He's promised us in relation to the most important things, like he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. He will never leave us nor forsake us. Uh, when tempted, it's, he says, he promises, he will give us strength to stand up under temptation. Do we believe what God says? Let's get very practical about this. You know what this necessitates. If you want to believe what God says, you have to first hear what God says, which means reading your Bible, uh, listening to it being preached, studying it together in small groups. There is a direct link, undeniably so, between growing in the knowledge of God's word and living by faith. And if we don't do those things, we will drift. All of this shrinking back and turning back, it doesn't actually happen suddenly. It happens gradually. I read an article by an FIC church planter in Liverpool called Steve Robinson on this. And he was writing about the time when he found himself in what he called a spiritual Sahara, involved in ministry but lacking joy. He was dry in his faith and he came to understand that it was through the personal neglect of God's word. And he says, I didn't wake up one day and decide, I'm going to stop reading God's word on a consistent basis. He said, it happened slowly over time. Other things became more urgent, even more desirable. He wasn't paying attention to what God says. He lost his fire and found doubt rising. Friends, doubt is microscopic in its beginnings, but it's snuffed out when you read what God says and when we help each other believe it. So let's read God's words. Let's, let's seek to learn more and more about what God has actually said through his word. 
Ask God to energize us in our listening. Maybe turn down the heat on a Sunday as well. And to heed what he says. Make sure that we attend regularly and be immersed in growth groups. If you're not part of one, ask at the information point. We'd love to plug you into one. And ask each other about this. This is one of the most important things that you can ask about. Like, who cares it's a little bit warmer today? I want to know if you've been reading your Bible. Do you want to know if I've been reading mine? I think that there are two questions that we should be really, really free and open to ask each other in relation to this. Number one, how's your Bible reading? Number two, tell me the truth. How's your Bible reading? Seriously, it's very, very important to us to hear what God says and to have what God says fuel our faith. God's word and character are the foundations for faith, solid foundations for faith. The fact that knowledge is key is found in 2 Peter 1, which says his divine power, God's divine power, has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us, that is Jesus, by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises. So there's a word for the future. So that through them, through those promises, through growing in the knowledge of them and the application of them, we may participate in the divine nature. That doesn't mean you become God. It means you become like God, like the Lord Jesus himself. That's one of the things that crucially helps the saints of the past and today not to shrink back, but to do as God instructs. And that's the second point. Believe what God says. Faith is word-based. And do as God instructs, point to. That's what people in, who believe in God do. You see, faith is really radically active. It's obedience. Obedience in the present while looking to the future for fulfillment of the promises that God has made. And that's what we see again in Abraham and Sarah's life in these passages. Verse 8, Abraham, watch for the obedience, when called to a place he would later receive as his inheritance. At this point, he didn't even know exactly where he was going. Obeyed and went. Verse 9 tells us that he went and made his home in the promised land. Now, they had been looking forward to that land, so that's why they left their old one. But specifically, it was because they had heard God's word, God's promise for that. They believed what God said, and they did as God instructed now, verse 11 shows us here that Abraham's and Sarah's activity um, is appropriately discreet. This is the second way that we see this in this little section about the descendants in verse 11 and 12. So they did it when they left, the, the, uh, left for, uh, Haran for the promised land. And also, they did as God instructed in relation to descendants. Now, verse 11 is quite discreet, and that's, that's appropriate. But what do you think Abraham and Sarah had to do to have descendants? Uh, Isaac was not delivered by a stork. They actually had to have sex. So Sarah found this prospect hilarious at first. In Genesis 18, she lolled and said, I'm worn out and Abraham's as good as dead. It's a brilliant description. It's so honest. But they had a promise and Abraham reminded her. Verse 12, and so from this one man that he is as good as dead came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. So they looked, they had God's promise of a son. 
they took God at his word and they did as God had instructed in Genesis. They went forth and multiplied. It's brilliant. And it's the same faith in God's promise that enabled Abraham later in this third scene in verses 17 to 19 in particular to obey God in this heart-wrenching, hard-to-read account of Abraham laying his son, his only son, whom he loved, on an altar of sacrifice. And he did, to the point of lifting the knife. It's incredible, isn't it? How could somebody do such a thing? I mean, I've read this passage many times and winced in Genesis 22. I've uh, skipped it in the Jesus Storybook Bible that we read to our kids. It's hard to grasp until you realize what faith Abraham had. And that's what verses 17 to 19 shows. His obedience of laying his son on the altar and lifting the knife was a result of taking God at his word. He believed what God actually said. Now, what had God said? Two things. Two things. Two seemingly irreconcilable instructions. One, through Isaac, God's promise would be continued. This is how he was going to have descendants. All the stars in the sky and the, you know, the, the sand on the seashore, all the people that would be like them were going to come through Isaac. God had specified that. But then instruction number two, kill Isaac. How do I reconcile those two things? Must have been the question that Abraham asked. You see there it says, Abraham reasoned, verse 19. So he's thinking it over. He's trying to figure this out. Has God, so number one, uh, through Isaac, the promise will continue. Number two, kill Isaac. So he's maybe thinking, has God changed his mind about number one, through Isaac, the promise will come? Well, no, God doesn't do that. He doesn't change his mind. Has he lied? No, he doesn't do that either. He's holy. So how will God keep one to make his promise come through Isaac if I do two, kill Isaac? Ah, well, he must be able somehow to raise Isaac from the dead, I suppose. But can God do such a thing? Maybe he's thinking along those lines. Well, if he's powerful enough to open the womb of a 90-year-old woman, barren all her life, and have a baby against all scientific probability, then I reckon he can raise the dead. If this God who is in heaven can speak to me down here on earth, and I see his word fulfilled again and again and again and again and again, then I can take his word in relation to this too. As hard, as hard as it seems. Romans 4 is a fantastic commentary on Genesis 22. No distrust made Abraham waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. And he lays his son on the altar to show us that even if things seem strange or hard, faith doesn't eliminate perplexity. It simply trusts God. Faith can waver, as Abraham and Sarah's both did. It's not perfect. But true faith prevails. 
God sees his obedience on this occasion and calls things to a halt, provides a sacrifice in his place, and then does so points forward to that great sacrifice where God the Father would lay his son, his one and only son whom he loved on another altar, not like a table, more like a cross. Whereas Isaiah 53 says, the Lord laid on him the sin of us all, and he crushed him in that particular moment on the cross for good, for our forgiveness, knowing truly, as was the plan, that three days later he'd bring him back from the dead and declare him, Jesus, to be the Son of God and true to his word. Do you believe that? How does this apply to us today? When we take God's word, when we hear what he says, well, we see that faith is radically active for us. It calls us out of our comfort zones. There's no doubt about that. It calls us to radical obedience. It calls us to speak to people whom we consider unlikely to believe, to give sacrificially, trusting that God will provide, to bless and not repay those who hurt us, knowing that God will reward such obedience. All these promises and many, many more are in there. And Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll obey what I command. That when we believe the gospel, when we believe what God says, we take his instructions, we take his commands, we hear his calls, and we don't shrink back in unbelief. We are those who have faith and act. But Abraham and Sarah's lives show us that the faith that God commends is one that believes what God says, that was point one, does as God instructs, that's point two, and thirdly and finally, wants what God promises. Here's what's behind the doing. Here's what's fundamentally behind the obedience in relation to all that God calls us to do, all that God says. It's desire. You see, faith is fundamentally a heart issue. It's what we do with our hearts. And that's what we see in this passage again. Faith looks forward with this heartfelt longing for all that God promises. It wants it. It desires it. And that's what Abraham and Sarah did. Now, again, I'm talking about land and descendants. Well, I'm, I'm we are talking about land and descendants here, but when you read this passage, you can see that actually, even when they're in the land, they're living like they don't, they're not citizens there. And that's not just because they haven't gained full ownership of it. It won't come till later in Joshua's time and even beyond. But their desires somehow are even through and beyond the very things that God has explicitly promised. Verse 9 tells us that even when Abraham entered the promised land, he looked forward to this other city. It's kind of enigmatic. What does that mean? Well, it says, by faith he made his home in the promised land. Verse 9, like a stranger in a foreign country, he lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, his son and grandson, 
who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was, so this is why he was living as a stranger in a foreign country. He was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. What city is that? Well, it sounds kind of permanent. It's got foundations. It's not like a tent like Abraham was living in. It's, good. it's not going anywhere. And who does it belong to? Well, God owns the patents for it. He's the architect and the builder. Now, people designed and built their own houses back then. That's exactly what God has done. He is building a better house, a better inheritance for his people. So you see what this means in the text. Abraham and Sarah actually desired more than the promises of God for this life. They desired God himself in the next. They looked forward to him. Somehow, they saw and welcomed, as it says in verse 13, from a distance what salvation itself would bring. A new heaven and new earth where sin and suffering and hardship are all gone. Verse 14 says they were looking forward to a country, not, they were looking forward to a country of, of their, not of their own, sorry. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, verse 16, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Do you share that same faith? This life, even with its complexities and its hardships, because life is hard, for the Christian, contains so much joy. There is a peculiar joy felt through suffering, but there's an inexpressible joy in knowing and loving and being known by and being loved by the Lord God of heaven and earth. It's absolutely glorious to know the one who made it all and to live in a way where we know that through Jesus Christ, our sins are forgiven. Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more, he says. We've been made perfect forever through him one day. But do we have this faith that looks forward even beyond the joy and the promises that we have for this life to the joy, capital J joy, and the life that we will have in the life to come and the world to come. It's a hard thing to do, isn't it? I mean, we live expecting all of our hopes really to be met on earth. It's hard to live for the things that are insubstantial, the things that you can't kind of grab with your hands or, or buy on Amazon, you know? It's hard to live for these things that you can't see, but that's what faith does. It hears what God says, it obeys as God instructs, because it desires it, it trusts him. But we tend to live in the here and now as if this is all there is, like this is the final destination, not heaven. But that's crazy. The Bible talks about this in many different ways. Um, I mean, what would you say to me if I checked into the Caledonian Hotel over there for a three-night stay? And that the first thing I did was order some John Lewis furniture to be delivered the next day to the hotel room. What, would you, what do you think people would say at the hotel if they saw me taking out the desk or putting in a new bed 
or hanging up some paintings on the wall and just chucking other things out that, they, that I just didn't want in there? What would you say if I was like remortgaging a house in order to do that? Or, you know, spending lots of money on the hotel room? What would you say? You'd be like, Liam, you're crazy. Why are you investing all this money and effort in a room that you're going to move out of on Wednesday? Well, it is crazy, but that's what we do, isn't it, in this life? That's what we do. We treat life as if this is all there is, but this is preparation. This isn't destination. Destination's still to come. Philippians 3.20 says it really clearly. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. When he comes, that's it. New heaven and new earth brought in. Eternal joy forevermore. Sin and suffering gone. As we sometimes sing, what a day that will be. Now we need to live with that in mind. That's what people of faith do. That's what we learn from Abraham and Sarah's example. That's actually how we make the, well, this, there's two crucial reasons why we need to live with that in mind. With that city with that better country in mind one two reasons why one is how we make the most of this world c.s lewis is cracking on this isn't he in mere christianity he says if you read history you'll find that the christians who did most for the present world are just the ones that thought most of the next the apostles themselves who set set on foot in the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, they all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they've become so, in it, so effective in this one. Aim at heaven and you'll get the earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. That's so true. So profound. But when your faith looks forward to what is to come, when it causes you to actually long in your heart, that's the word that's in there, looking in verse 14 and longing in verse 16, are the words for desire, heartfelt longing, a craving even. That's what helps you to believe what God says. To do as God instructs. That's when you'll make a heavenly investment in love through generosity. That's when you start to accept the suffering in this life as something momentary and passing. And that's the thing that makes us urgent in mission. That's the first thing. We live with that future city in mind and desire that because that's how we make most of this world, but it's also how we please God. Verse 16b, look at it with me. Therefore, in other words, because of what people are longing for in their hearts, God, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Think about that. God is not ashamed, if you have faith like this, to be called your God, uh, to be called your God. Not ashamed. Yet don't we often believe that God is ashamed of us? We think we're such failures. We are, 
but God, by his grace, has covered those sins and dealt with those failures. But he's talking specifically here about this longing, this desire for him being a good thing. Why is God not ashamed to be called our God? Well, the answer really lies immediately before and after this statement. Reason one is because his people long for the heavenly city. Reason two, after, because God has actually prepared the heavenly city just as he promised. So why, in the context, is God not ashamed to be their God? Because they've heard his promise, believed his promise, and look forward to receiving what's promised. They have faith. They are sure of what they hope for and certain even of the things that they cannot see. So they believe what God says. They do as God instructs because they want what God promises. Do you desire to be with God in glory? Do you desire that kind of future? Do you have faith believing that that's coming through all that Jesus Christ has done for us and through our faith in him, then God is not ashamed to call you his own. That is a beautiful thought. God is not ashamed of you. Even with simple faith like this. So how does this help those people who were tempted to shrink back? How does it help us today if we're tempted to kind of just be a little bit lackluster in our faith or even to turn away from Christ completely? How does this help us today? Well, Abraham and Sarah are provided for us an, as an example of this faith. And namely that they lived this way until the day they died. That's what verse 13 highlights for us, isn't it? All these people were still living by faith when they died. They didn't shrink back. They didn't throw away their confidence. God gave them a taste, and only a taste, of the grace which is poured on us, actually. Even though they only saw it at a distance, these are the things that we now see close up. They didn't shrink back. They kept going to the end, and they are laid out here for us as an inspiration, like on the Murrayfield tour. that we should be inspired by their faith and commitment. And so with dependence on God and his Holy Spirit, live in that way too. Their lives testify to the grace of God who kept them and urged them on to the very end without shrinking back, without turning away. And their lives ought to encourage us. We're going to get to this in a couple of weeks, but these are the apt words to finish with. Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, what great examples, let us throw off everything that hinders, the sin that so easily entangles us, and let us run with perseverance. So that's not shrinking back, that's keeping on going. The race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorned at shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and so that you will not lose heart. Let's pray together.
our Father, we pray that today you'd give us the grace to believe all the things that you say. With your Spirit's help to do as you direct us and to do so longing in our hearts for all the things that you have promised us and above all with a great, great longing for you. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.